Hey, what is up, everybody? Steven here, the Horror Freak 85. Welcome to the House of Horrors Live. Tonight, we are joined by director and writer Tom McLaughlin. Thank you for joining us. Oh, hi. <laughs> Go ahead, take your drink. It's cool. Sorry. Don't oh, worry. How are you guys doing? Great. I'm having a good weekend. I'm uh, not in my normal setting. I'm in the hotel room here. Came up to do the show. So just been. Where, where are you? Where, where is Horrorhound? Uh, it's in Cincinnati this time. Ah, okay. So, yeah, I, I was telling her um, I had some friends. This was totally last minute. I got some uh, press passes and they emailed me like four days prior, five days. I'm like, how am I going to make that? And I didn't think I was going to. Turns out some friends were vacationing in Kentucky about an hour or so away. Uh, they got some Amish uh, relatives. And so I was living the Amish life for a couple of days. So I that was uh, I I, yeah, it was fun. So yeah, uh, great, great cooks too. Oh, it was fun. So I actually enjoyed it seeing that little other side there. Yeah. And so they like conventions. We drove over long story short. So, but yeah, so I made it to the convention. So and any of the other uh, Friday the 13th alumni out there? Uh, yes. Um, and now, of course, my brain, um, Macy or the woman who played Macy um, okay. is here. Um, Tom is here. Um, or no, no, he did Michael Myers. Not Was he in Friday? The no, he did Michael Myers. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I think there was someone else I can't think of offhand. Uh, I have to check. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, Matthews? You say Tom Tom Matthews or Tom Fridley? No, no, more. Um, it, it's from Halloween. Tom Moore, um, not more, more, the other one. Um, wow, I feel really bad now. We're forgetting his name. Right well, while he's figuring out, Space yeah, go ahead. Ace says Jason lives as one of my girlfriend and I's favorite Friday the 13th films. That's so nice. Thank you. Yeah, I just got done watching the director's cut because <laughs> I've seen that movie so many times and my I happen to have be lucky enough to have the DVD with the director's cut. So I was like, I don't watch the director's cut before this. I think it's pretty much a lot of people's favorite, definitely. <laughs> well, there's not. Yeah, the, the director's cut isn't much of a director's cut, um, unfortunately. The commentary, you know, I guess I should say. Oh, the commentary. I, yes. Yeah, the commentary. I don't know why. I always call it director's cut. I don't know why. Yeah. I called it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty much the book. I, I was fortunate. The movie is pretty much the movie I wanted to do, other than the MPA. Uh, uh, now I'm doing it. <laughs> MPAA um, basically cut down some of the kills. You know, I mean, they left the kill in, but you know, they like kept making me chop little frames here and there, so it was a little less offensive in their way of thinking. But um, basically, everything else is pretty much intact. <laughs> Yeah. Now, like how you said you was wanting to bring Jason's dad into it. That would have been great yeah. to have. Yeah. But that, yeah, that left before I even shot. Um, yeah. That was something that was in the original script that I turned in, but then ultimately it was something that, and I agreed with Frank Bancuso Jr. about this is that the people were really upset at part five because it ended with what looked like Tommy Jarvis was going to be the next Jason. And it wasn't actually Jason that was doing the killing in the movie. So they wanted to make sure nobody had any inkling that at the end of part six, that the next movie was going to be meet Jason's dad. I mean, it's like, no, it's, it's like Jason's back. You know, the man behind the mask is back. And, you know, that's the note, you know, they wanted to go out on not, not introducing, you know, another possible character. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I know there have been rumors a few times about bringing Jason's dad into the mix and other, you know, throughout the timeline, but they just never have done it. Well, that's that technically not true in the oh, really? world of fan films. Vengeance. Oh, I haven't seen those. <laughs> oh, yeah, you should see Vengeance. Well, a lot of them are really good. Never Hike Alone. Those uh, are right. uh, I've heard really good. I've just never gotten around to watching yeah. them. But um, yeah, Vengeance, the guys who put together Vengeance contacted me and they said, look, we would love to do um, what you didn't get a chance to do, which is Jason's father and Jason in the same movie. And I said, hey, if you've got a good take on it, go for it, because I didn't get to do it. And I certainly have no problem if you, know, you guys want to run with the ball. And they said, well, not only that, but C.J. Graham, who played your Jason, is going to play the father. And I went, that, that's great. And they said, well, would you be interested in playing the old caretaker and being the first scene with Jason? I mean, with Jason's father. And I said, send me a plane ticket. I'm there. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I did a, like a cameo at the very beginning of the first Vengeance movie. Now they've done a second one, a sequel to that. And I've got quite a few scenes in this one with uh, C.J. Graham and, and Jason. And um, also Darcy DeMoss, who was in mine, you know, played Nikki. You know, she has... <laughs> she has returned. She wasn't killed in mine, according to what their uh, mythology is. And there's a couple of other surprises that, you know, occur along the way. So, you know, for fans who love the fan films, you know, they obviously have very little money, but they have a lot of passion. You know, there's mm -hmm. some, some cool things in these things that they Yeah, they usually do. independent or fan films are usually really good for, you know, they try to make it as best as they can and yeah. with what they got. And they usually do a really good job. Mm -hmm. I was really impressed with Never Hike Alone, what they did with that. that was... Yeah. Yeah. Vincent's very gifted at, 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 as a filmmaker, and he's so knowledgeable as a, as a fan of the series. I mean, it's like, my God, <laughs> everything about everybody, you know. So he was a good person to kind of be the first one out the gate to do something like this. Mm -hmm. Nice. I'll have to look those up. I, I don't know why I've never gotten around to watch them, but I have heard good things about them. Yeah, well, you know, the, the good good news is they're free, you know, you can see them on YouTube. And nobody can make any money on these things if they do once the, you know, the settlement gets, you know, settled. Um, you know, they can get shut down or sued for making money off of the name Friday the 13th or Jason. But right now it's, you know, a free for all because nobody owns the Friday the 13th title nor the uh, Jason Voorhees. So until that time, you know, they're free to, to do things. And they always put a disclaimer, you know, that this has nothing to do with Paramount or New Line or Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. and this is just fans supporting other fans to make this so that that kind of keeps them in the clear. And as long as I said they're not making money, there's not there's no reason to sue because there's no money there to get. Right. Yeah, Space out Ace says. Friday four leaves people believing that Tommy is going to be Jason in quotes and they ren herring Tommy as Jason in five. Yeah. Uh, um, in the commentary, you said that you still own the, the tombstone in the movie was in your backyard. Do you still have that? Yeah. Oh yeah. I can see it right from my vantage point right here. <laughs> I turn, turn, turn the laptop around and you can see it sitting there. And literally directly below me in the basement is Jason's coffin. Yeah, that was my next question. <laughs> oh, yeah, both, both, both are there. I used to drag them out at Halloween, but the tombstone, I mean, it takes three people to pick this thing up. I mean, it is a real tombstone. 
it was cheaper to have a real one made in Georgia where we shot than yeah. it was to have a, you know, make one made out of foam and sent from Hollywood. So, you know, we got the real deal. The same thing with the coffin, you know, it's a real coffin um, and it's all made to look, you know, muddy and stuff like it's been, you know, down there for a while. So it's, yeah, it's my two uh, fave souvenirs from the, from the movie. Yeah. And my husband heard you say that in the commentary before he ended up leaving. And he goes, that sounds like you. <laughs> Do you still have that uh, Jason uh, thing you got the Halloween store? And it was like a really tall, like Jason figurine. You say you got. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, amazing. <laughs> another thing that you, if you open my basement door to go downstairs, the second you open the door, he comes to life down there along with the ch -ch -ch sound and his you know machete goes up and down so i've certainly scared the shit out of quite a few people that like, oh, <laughs> love to have that during halloween that'd be so much fun yeah, <laughs> yeah turn your uh, basement into a little haunted house yeah yeah that's i mean I, it's like i can't get away from all this stuff that i loved as a kid that you know when, as i got older in life it's like okay you know i'm i'm gonna buy the jack skeleton you know and i'm gonna buy a, a, you know the jack-in-the-box you know the huge jack-in-the-box thing that's a clown that's really you know kind of like killer clowns and yeah you know, put stuff out in the yard so that you know, it becomes like the cool halloween house because that i've always loved that when i was a kid you know it was always like these one or two houses that always kind of went for it as a kid you always wanted to go there see what they're going to do this year yeah i'll do the year before um i was gonna say it's tom morgan who was here oh okay and then um uh, let's see who else was here some bunch of nightmare and uh elm street fear street um janine taylor uh lauren marie taylor oh uh deborah Voorhees. she's here too oh great wow uh, yeah yeah always been a fan of hers so, yeah there was actually um a question here where was it i'll just get to that later someone said about the um different uh oh for the sequel um did you think that friday the 13th would go as far as they did for you to continue the story no nobody did um you know the, the strange thing guys is like in the 80s Oh, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Um, we didn't know what the hell we, you know, we, we, we wanted to make movies, but we wanted to make movies like in the seventies and the stuff that we were getting was sort of like, yeah, but that's not cool. Like star Wars and Rocky and Godfather and, you know, you know, exorcist and, and stuff. It, you know, the, the, once the slasher franchise started with Halloween, everything was about you know making those kinds of movies and then then it was like okay you know we had michael myers then of course we had jason and we had freddie and then we had chucky and then we had uh pinhead and you know on and on and again these were like okay they're cool people went and saw them a lot of them really weren't big hits in the theater until they took off on vhs then people started coming like nightmare four it, it, you know that was the one that really started to you know really go the the earlier ones, they weren't as big as, you know, they obviously became. And the audience for Friday was building very rapidly. Part of the reason, too, there wasn't that many Halloweens being done. And then they got the part four on, and said, okay, that's it. We, we you know, milked all the <laughs> juice out of this. Um, but part four did so well, it's like, okay, a new beginning. So it started the, the process all over again. So by the time 
you know, they got the six with me. I went, I can't take this stuff seriously. You know, I, I gotta have fun with it. I'm still going to make him scary, but I want to sort of satire the whole genre at that point. Um, which was like the mid mid eighties, you know, like eight, the end of 85 that we were doing it, putting it together at least and came out in 86. But I thought as we all did at that time is these movies would open and maybe they'd go a second week and then kind of go off to the suburbs and disappear into nowhere and then somehow end up on, you know, VHS or in those days there was also beta. Um, but that was like sort of like a secondary market. You know, no one knew that the, you know, Blockbuster and all those things were going to become our church. And we were going to be there every weekend and, you know, renting things and stuff. So it really exploded. And these horror icons that we love, Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, all that. Now the 80s provided each audience and still today, or at least in my case, 35 years later, Jason's bigger than he's ever been. And we had not a clue. I mean, it's such a incredible blessing that it happened. I mean, I love when people come up and it's like, I just saw it. I just saw the movie. I, you know, people have been telling me about it for years and they're as excited as the people that saw it in the audience and the theaters the first time that that first audience, which is just incredible, you know, to have something like that occur, you know, in your career. And that was from uh, Ron right here in Cincinnati. I just wanted to mention that too, who uh, submitted that question. So I'm sure he'll be watching soon. So I wanted to thank him for that. And thank you for answering. Uh, then we got, um, what was your favorite kill that you created? Um, and that's from Zach and Mylene. I hope I said that right. <laughs> Zach and Eileen? M-I-L-A-N, Mylene, Mylene, that's how he said it. Yeah. Excuse me. Well, guys, uh, this will sound sort of sick, but it's like, you know, who's your favorite kid out of all the kids that you had? Uh, you know, it's like, well, I originally had 13 in that movie and then it moved up to 16, 7, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 total. Um, the, the, the ones towards the end that we picked up because Frank wanted three more kills after the 13 that I you know, did to me were not as good as some of the ones that I had spent a little more time, you know, thinking about and, and wanted to come up with something different. But as far as which is my favorite one, I guess the one, you know, I, I'm a horror when it comes to, you know, what, what does the customer want? You know, I can do it this way. I can do it that way. What do you want? Well, you know, how much are you going to pay? Um, but <laughs> it's the actually the simplest one, which has no blood in it, which was actually a gag that I took from a skit that I wrote years ago for Dick Van Dyke, is the bending the, the sheriff backwards. Um, yeah. When that happened in a theater, people were just like, oh, you know, and they got more upset about that than they did about, you know, most kills in the Fridays. And I guess it was because they could somehow feel the pain of what that must be like. I don't know, but that to me ended up being kind of my favorite because again, it was so simple how we executed it with two different people, you know, somebody, you know, playing his legs and somebody doing, uh, I mean, him doing himself and then, you know, bending him back um, and then adding the sound effect. And the MPAA also targeted that more times than any of the other kills you know, take a few more frames off of it, take a few, you know, they found it way too intense. And I guess, you know, anything that pisses off the adults, we like, right? Exactly. 
uh, Jeremy wanted to know, um, besides yourself, um, uh, well, about how many people were involved? Was it a huge casting crew or crew behind the scenes uh, or smaller? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't uh, small, small. I mean, compared to some small independent films now, um, I would say there's probably was about 30 of us, I guess, maybe uh, somewhere in that vicinity. Um, so, yeah, we had, you know, all kind of the key, you know, you know, DP and camera operator and camera assistant and, you know, all that and gaffer and best way and grips and, and all that. And then the one thing that was a little additional is that we were lighting with these huge carbon arc lights, which they don't use anymore, but they're incredibly bright. And you have to, it's basically kind of putting, you know, this carbon arc, of, you know, that's burning. Um, so you have to have people keep bringing the, the arc together so it keeps creating this uh, spark that lights up like you can't believe. And we have people way up high in front of the trees lighting down for our moonlight. So we had extra guys that just had to stay up there all night and keep adjusting the light so it stayed in the same consistency through the shots. So that added a few more people than what you would you know, normally have on something like this where you just set up stands and or shoot daytime and make it look like night. But in general, it was a, you know, pretty condensed group of crew and then the cast. Well, you know, you see it's a, not a huge amount of people. Um, kind of where we brought in extras was having the kids, you know, to have all those additional kids, which I really wanted to have. And I was fortunate that it worked out that we could, you know, actually have kids, you know, performing in that uh, at night. And their parents were like, yeah, we love this because the parents were all Friday the 13th or horror fans. So. Yeah, they, they were thrilled to be there. <laughs> and uh, was there anything? Um, oh, okay. So, uh, this is from Addison in Michigan. Uh, I guess there was a rumor or something you had pitched an idea about Cheech and Chong maybe being a part of it, kind of like an Abbott Costello type deal. I uh, was wondering if you had written anything to it or it was just a pitch. It literally was a... <laughs> um, it was one of those things where when we when the movie was finished and they saw what kind of reaction it got uh frank came to me and he said look how do you how do you feel about doing you know part seven and i went i don't have any idea of what to do with that uh you know i said you know i, I mean i guess we could explore jason's father and you sort of like mm, yeah maybe some of it but it's really got to be about jason i go no no i get that um well, let me think about it. And he said, well, let me ask you this. What do you think about Jason meets Freddy? I went, that could be cool. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, you know, because this was before we were having all these, you know, monsters fighting each other, except going back to Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And, um, well, I take that back. <laughs> the, the Japanese were doing it with the, you know, King Kong and Godzilla and all that uh, yeah. for, for kind of the traditional American monsters. I don't think that there was that sort of pairing off. But, you know, Freddie was with um, New Line Pictures and obviously Jason's with Paramount. So I didn't know how these two big, you know, studios would, would come to terms. And Frank says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on this and get back to you in about a week. And he came back in a week and he said, nope, they won't do it. And we don't like their terms of what they want to do. So any other ideas? And literally just crazy off the top of my head, I went, well, you guys have Cheech and Chong, right? And he goes, yeah, so? 
And I said, well, what about Evan and Costello meet Frankenstein, John meet Jason? And, you know, he laughed and, you know, and he said, you're kidding. And I said, it's half kidding. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I, somehow I can just see them like as camp counselors or they're camping and say, you know, hey, Vato, you know, Jason's out here. No, there's no Jason, man. <laughs> yeah, man, he's killing And just have that, you know, as part of the thing. Of course, Jason's not going to get to them. Or if he does, you know, how do they deal with it? And Frank said, you know, I don't, I don't think it's the same audience. And I said, I don't know. I think these, I think everybody smokes the same weed when they go to see a horror movie or a <laughs> movie. I think, you know, and he goes, well, the horror people might be upset about the comedy and the comedy people might be upset about the horror. And I go, I don't know. I somehow think this could work. It was too, too early in the whole cycle of doing this stuff. So yeah, it, it, obviously it was. A I think horror comedy is probably a little bit more popular now. I don't know if yeah. Chong might be too old for it now, but it might be more of a time period where that would be a better received movie maybe i don't know yeah. i've always been a horror comedy fan so i yeah. see more of it now than like when i was younger so i don't know that's just my oh. perspective though <laughs> well you know a lot of interesting things you know that happened after i had done friday because i was really scared that the fans were gonna not like the comedy aspect that i put into the friday and i tried to do it in such a way where i'm sort of winking at the audience like with the james bond thing going all right this is cool but it's sort of funny you know or you know some of the lines that the characters were doing but not making fun of jason i just wanted you to like these people and that it had something very different from the normal way of approaching it right up to the caretaker looking in the lens and going some folks have a strange idea of entertainment you know, which was directed at us, the audience, and also, you know, to the critics to make a joke about, hey, this is the stuff we like. And that helped us with reviews. But the whole movie has always been looked at as sort of the rock and roll Jason, you know, the Jason that kind of took the format and did something different with it. So cut to a number of years later, my agent sending me scripts, I get a script of a movie called, uh, you know, Scary Movie. And I start reading it and going, God, this is so much like my, you know, Jason lives in not that, you know, it was the same story or anything, but that whole making sort of fun of the genre and having fun with the in jokes and stuff. So I said, no, I kind of made this movie. What else do you got? And after I read a bunch of other scripts, nothing was as good as that script. So I went back and I said, you know, you still have that scary movie script. He goes, no, Wes Craven's doing it. And I went, okay, well, you know, I'm sure he'll do a good job. Well, obviously the Scream franchise was huge. You know, he changed it from Scary Movie to Scream, later used the, the, you know, the name Scary Movie on another film. And then maybe another six, eight years later, I meet Kevin Williamson who wrote Scream and about some other project and we're talking and he said, you know, I gotta tell you something. Your Friday the 13th had a lot to do with why I wrote, you know, Scary Movie. And I went, you're not going to believe this, Kevin. I passed on that because I felt it was too much like it. He goes, well, that's weird. And I go, but, you know, obviously I can't say anything bad about Wes, what Wes has done. He's done an amazing job with it. But, you know, I kind of regret now that I passed it, you know, passed mm -hmm. on it because, of, you know, it was a terrific idea. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's an interesting story. Did not know that about Scream being passed <laughs> off there. <laughs> 
Let's see. Uh, Doomsday Crypt wants to know uh, what was it like working with uh, CJ? He met him at a Crypticon. Dude is hilarious. Uh, he has ton of uh, ton of rewind ton of love for you, Tom. Uh, we need CJ as Jason again, and you to write and direct. Um. Yeah. 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 All of those are yeps. Um. <laughs> J CJ is an incredible guy. Uh, since the time we worked together, we have remained, you know, good, good friends. Uh, we always are texting, Facebooking, you know, doing these conventions together. So we see each other quite a bit. Um, podcasts, you know, CJ will talk with, you know, one interviewer and then he says, yeah, you ought to talk to Tom or I'll, I'll meet with an interviewer and say, you know, you guys, yeah, you got to go talk to, you know, CJ and, and any of the cast members, you know, we're all close. Um, so yeah, he, he has been great. And yes, I, I finally did after almost 32 years, wrote a sequel to my Jason lives that takes place in 1999, uh, 13 years after, you know, I put Jason down into the water and I thought, you know, there's stuff that they've done since then. And it's almost like Halloween where they sort of the last Halloween, they said, okay, yes, there's all these sequels, but we're going to pick up at this point where we kind of left off in the original. So I wanted to kind of pick up where I left off and do something that's a little bit more of, did this happen or not happen? But there are documents about it. Um, that there was reports that this occurred. And based on those documents, that's how I wrote this story. And I wanted to really do something that hadn't been done yet on a Friday, uh, which is put Jason in the snow uh, in the winter. Um, set it at a literally across the lake at a, a spiritual retreat with uh, all female teenage Catholic girls and a nun. And those are the only women. Yeah, I mean, those are the women and Jason's the only man and try to do something different with the way things go in terms of the course. But basically, it's still that whole claustrophobic thing that you can't get out. This is almost like the uh, John Carpenter's The Thing or even the original thing where you're stuck in a snowed in environment and going out there just means you're going to face Jason, but it's going to completely different. You know, you're not going to be running as you are, you know, trying right. to through the snow to get, a, get away. Um, so, you know, I have that script. We have storyboards. If anybody, you know, gets the screen, screen factory big, you know, box set, you know, there's, uh, you know, I have illustrations and com concept drawings in there of what I want to do. And when I was writing it, all I saw was CJ. I mean, so obviously I told him if we can get this thing happening after the rights issue gets solved, you know, you and I are going to team up again. So this is, this is the big hope. Doomsday was asking, uh, aside from part six, what's your favorite in the series? Four. Uh, well, one, one was the one I originally saw and thought it was great. And then I had not seen any of the other ones until I got the job. Then I went back and watched one all the way through five and watching them there as like, you know, the, the Jason movies, because obviously the first one wasn't a Jason movie. Part four was the one that uh, Joe Zito directed that I thought really had all the elements really well done. And that, that kind of was, you know, my favorite of, of all the other uh, sequels. I'm one of the odd man out. And number eight's my favorite. <laughs> it was the first Jason, Jason takes a boat ride. Is that, is that the first one you saw? 
Yeah, it was the first one. I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies when I was younger. So yeah. when I got older, I started like sneaking into the like watching channels I wasn't supposed to, and I ended up I watched Jason Eight, and it made me fall in love with Jason. Yeah. And then I started watching the other ones, but yeah, I, I'm low key number eight. <laughs> I mean, my girlfriend was really young when her brother took her to see Part Five, so that was her favorite, you know, seeing Part Five. And then by the time she saw mine, Part Six. Then she liked that even better, but she still has all this sentimental, you know, attachment because that was the first one that she saw. And I, I realize when I meet people, it's always about that, you know, the first one that you went, yeah. Well, what is this? You know, that that really has. Yeah, I let my son uh, when I was introduced, trying to introduce him into horror movies. I let him pick. It was like some Friday the Thirteenth. I laid out all my DVDs because I own all of them, and I was like, okay, you pick which one you want to watch, and he picked out ten. So 10 was his first. Yeah. <laughs> we watched 10 and 8. So, but yeah, he really liked that. Yeah. But yeah, those are more of the goofy, goofier side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the franchise was just kind of running out of ideas. And it's like, you know, let's send him to Mars. No, no, let's just send him in outer space. Okay. You know, well, how about another town? You know, Kansas. Nah, Manhattan. Yeah. You know, and then of course they come up with this stuff and then they don't have the budget to go to New York. So, you know, they end up thing in Vancouver, mainly on a boat. So, right. you know, he, he got there eventually, but I think the, the movie that was in all of our heads, you know, didn't quite happen because just, they just didn't have the budget to go to New York and really put Jason in New York. Mm -hmm. um, hey, Internet, Eric here says, any stories or thoughts from you about your relationship with Mick Garris? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, Nick and I have been so close. I'm almost like brothers for so many years, you know, the, the two of us both look like renegades from the, you know, 60, 70 era with the hair and all that. Um, yeah, I just, uh, in fact, I just saw him like two weeks ago. He has a, a book, um, Master of Horror, that just came out about his life and about his film. So I was there with a bunch of his other, you know, close friends, and we were autographing the book along with him because we all have you know, wonderful things to say about him and our relationship with him over the years. And yeah, Nick has really kind of uh, pulled all the horror directors together with this master of horror, masters of horror dinners that he would do. And they were for guys like me, you know, to be sitting there and have Quentin Tarantino on one side and Wes Craven on the other and Ram Zabi across from you and John Carpenter. I mean, just all these guys from, you know, the early 50s horror movies all the way to the guys doing paranormal activity and, you know, conjuring and things. It was just amazing. And the, the incredible thing, and, and I think all you guys who are fans will appreciate, these guys are no different than us who love these horror movies. And we're all like in awe of one another. And it's like, yeah, but what you did, yeah, but what you did, you know. And, and it's like, you know what script I read that I, I'm just not right for, but you know, you should get your agent to get this. I mean, just so giving so much like, you know, big kids. Um, it was so great when ladies started to come because it was like all like a guy club for many years. Finally, there's, you know, female horror directors now. And, you know, the new Candyman I thought was great. I thought she I've did. heard good things about it. I haven't got a chance to see it yet, yeah, but I've heard really I, good I, things about it. I, I highly I recommend it. And I'm I'm not a big fan of of you know when they take something and try to remake it or reinvent it some way, but they did a kick-ass job with this. And uh, you know I just wish that the pandemic wasn't still 
happening the way it is that it didn't, you know, have a bigger audience. Because I think a lot of people just, you know, are still not going to movies yet. Yeah. But, you know, I, I stick on the stupid fucking mask and go, you know. <laughs> My friend was lucky enough to see it at a drive-thru uh, not too far, uh, I forget where, in Georgia. Uh, we live in Tallahassee, of course, and it's like about an hour away, and I was like, oh, I wish I could have gone. That must have been great going through the drive-in and seeing Candyman. But yeah. Maybe next time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't even think our theater has it. We have one theater, and it just opened like a month ago. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Yeah, ours opened really late. Uh, and I've I've tried to keep an eye on it, but see what they've had. But I haven't seen much of like horror movies go to ours anyway, so I haven't got a chance to see it. So, but I'm excited. Once it gets to at least a streaming service or something, I I'll be able to see it. Cause I don't know if I'll be able to see it any other way, unless I travel to like Madison or something. <laughs> I mean, I I was shocked because the new Halloween, as you guys know, is coming. You know, Halloween. Topeka. Yeah, it's got yeah. yeah. theater. It's like, well, why didn't Candyman come out to streaming if Halloween kills is? I, yeah, so, I mean, I I I was shocked that it, you know it's being released in, on Peacock, which is and yeah, that's a weird uh, choice there, Peacock. Yeah, I, I remember reading it. And I thought it said Paramount Plus at first, and I was like, oh cool, I have Paramount now. I'm gonna have to like think it's like, should I spring for Peacock? <laughs> <laughs> that's what they're trying to do get the horror fans to get think of right yeah because yeah. i really want to see it I, I really like the first one that they did so i want to see the halloween guild i want to see candy man too but i'll eventually get to see him <laughs> yeah i mean i unfortunately i'm very old in that you know it's like horror movies and comedies it's like go to the theater be around other people see if it's funny because other people are laughing because sometimes you don't know you know, if that's supposed to be a joke or not. And the same thing with horror. And it's the audiences today, too, just don't respond like, you know, I hate to sound like the old fart talking about it. But, you know, in the in the 70s and 80s and stuff, people would be screaming at the screen, getting up out of their seats, you know, don't go in there, motherfucker. No, no. You know, and it was just like it was an event. It was like a thrill. Yeah. And you would at least I, I would design the movie so that people would respond you know, set up things that would make them laugh or yell something back or whatever, because it was all part of the experience. And now, you know, I, I remember when I went and saw it and I was really excited because Pennywise looked so great. And I thought, I know this is going to be interesting, you know, take on what the, you know, the TV movie miniseries was. And I was very impressed with it, but I, I went and saw it the first night and the audience just sat there. I went, that's okay. All right. We're going to another theater tomorrow night. I went to another place in town, saw it again, same thing. I'm going, okay, holy shit, wait a minute. All right, and Sunday, you know, <laughs> went to another theater. Now I went to where people really respond, you know, very ethnic audience, mixed, you know, stuff. And I know they're always, you know, pretty noisy, which is fine for me because I want to hear how they feel, what they think. And the only thing that got a reaction was when the, the boy and the girl kissed. It was like, oh, I went, that's it for a horror movie? Not when he's running out in the basement? Or yeah, I saw the first one in the theater, and I don't re really remember too much. Last time I remember, like, going to the theater and seeing, like, a reaction, but I never, like, went to the theater, like, constantly. But it was, like, the remake to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh -huh. It was two girls sitting in front of me that apparently did not know what Leatherface was and started freaking out when he was, like, cutting the person's face off. And I just want to say, like, did you not know where you were going to see? Yeah. Well, that, you know, I got to tell you, that used to be the thrill, at least for us guys, you take a date, 
you know, and you wouldn't tell them what it was that you're taking them to. And so, you know, watching these guys, you know, sit there and, you know, laugh as their girlfriends, you know, got their arms <laughs> them and hiding their eyes and stuff, again, was part of that whole thing of like a fun house, you know, and it's like, tell me when it's over, tell me when it's over, you know, and of course, it's over. and then it wasn't over. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, that and when I saw the original Halloween on the on the first day, when that came out, and literally guys popcorn was flying in the air because people were jumping out of their seats and their popcorn and just go airborne and it was amazing you know to be part of that and they were just so terrified and then when it ended and the shape wasn't there he left now everybody left going oh shit, he's out there someplace you know they didn't kill him he's still out there and that was you know revolutionary for normally the monster gets killed at the end right and everybody walks out going well we got through that it's like nope <laughs> evil still is roaming someplace and that that i think was very very cool um you know hitchcock did that with the birds many years before where they got away but all those birds just sat there for us to go all right next time you see a bird think about this you know. right. <laughs> yeah that's an amazing movie I, mean, I think the last time i had a went to a movie and seen like an actual reaction like that was like the blair witch it was when everybody still thought it was real yeah and soon it was over like literally nobody moved out of their seat lights came on everybody was sitting there just waiting and then finally everybody started like filing out at like yeah. the last minute it's just like nobody wanted to leave their seats yeah i know it that that was a real game changer and uh, mm -hmm. i've gotten to be friends with dan merrick who had you know created blair witch and directed it um and we're doing a project together now um that i was about to shoot in Florida. I was literally 48 hours from shooting. And then um, somebody that owned the plantation where we were supposed to shoot, and this was just like two months ago, pulled the plug because they found out that I was making a very strong anti-racist statement at a place where, you know, I mean, the name of the piece is The Hanging Tree. And it has to do with, you know, back in the days when, you know, Blacks were hung just because of right. the skin. And they did not want that shot on their property, despite the fact that this place had like 6,000 slaves since 1850 or whatever. It's sort of like, we, we don't want folks to be reminded of that. Um, but in the center of their town, they've got, you know, a, an actual hanging tree that's labeled as such. And I'm going, all right, what side of the fence are we on down here? But yeah, we had to leave and now we're in Georgia looking for locations to shoot this. And I kind of have to, you know, be very careful about that whole thing because you know it's a far more sensitivity to it than I certainly realized. I know I thought, look at the past, see that we don't repeat that again because there was an awful lot of injustice for a lot of different, you know, people, a lot of different ethnic types over the years, and you know that should not be. But how do we forget about it? People do, and they won't. You know, it's like they don't want to be reminded. So yeah, it, it, but Dan Merrick and I, you know, have been working on trying to get this thing made and talking with him about Blair Witch. He had no idea that was going to be what it became. And um, part of that was the internet, you know, the, the fact that people started hearing about it and they went to the theater with these terrified expectations that they were going to see something real. And that, that really added a lot to the experience. Doomsday has a question. Is there something in modern horror that you think, uh, excuse me, 
that Tom thinks modern horror does better than classics and things they might not capture and he feels missing? It's kind of a long run question. <laughs> I think I understand what he's saying. Is that we are doing today in horror that they didn't do before. Yeah, I think that's where he's going with. Um, well, obviously, it goes without saying pretty much that the effects now are unbelievable. I mean, you know, what you can pull off uh, and you get good makeup effects, people. And, you know, when you cut a throat open now, it's not just, you know, a, a, a blade, a phony blade with a little bit of red sauce <laughs> go across. I mean, the neck opens up and, the, you know, you see, you know, inside the muscles. I mean, it's just incredible or, or heads being blown off or any of this stuff that, you know, it's like, oh my God, that's too real. But how many of us actually have seen any of this stuff to say it's real or not, but it certainly feels that way. But I think just in terms of stories and things, there's a lot of stuff that was just, you know, taboo material back in the day. I mean, whether it had to do with anything that had any gay themes in it, or if the, the, the heroes were any type of ethnicity that you couldn't have that they, you know, switch it up. And Candyman is a perfect example that is told more from the black perspective than it was from the white perspective in the original. And so there's certain things now that I think really add more emotional depth that we didn't have before. Um, I always go back to The Sixth Sense as one of those movies that when I saw it, I went, God, they could have just taken that movie and said, well, this has been on the shelf since the 1980s here, you know, what do you think? Because it had this sort of like timeless horror quality about it, yet this, the whole idea of it being, you know, from the perspective of somebody who was dead looking at this thing and the relationship with the little boy and how he carried that movie, you know, I can't think of a whole lot of other examples where, you know, it really was that powerful, um, you know, that the horror movies kind of had matured, you know, to that point. And the big game changer, of course, was Exorcist you know, what that did and got away with, with an R rating is, you know, really kind of changed everything. Um, so there was a period where we were really trying to be more bloody, more gory. And then you bring up, you know, Blair Witch and not a drop of blood, you know, yeah. everything was in your imagination. And that was really great. Paranormal activity, you know, basically you're looking at all these scenes from a surveillance camera sitting up there and you're watching people like this big on the screen moving around and suddenly there's like a boom you know that happens the whole audience jumps you know and the person down there something just seemed to explode and they get a big jump scare out of that you know we never could do that back in the day but part of it is because on television we've seen these reality shows that showed us these you know perspectives you know this night vision look you know where people's eyes kind of glow you know white and, you know, that looks creepy. And they, when you're going down into the basement and somebody's got one of those cameras, there's a lot of little innovations that, you know, have occurred that, you know, take horror kind of like another step beyond, you know, what it was. But it still gets down to the basics, guys. <laughs> You've got to have somebody up there that you care about, you know, as the lead character or a relationship that you want to see if they're going to make it through this, the two of them. There's got to be some sort of structure that, something set up that you're, you're going to be promised something by the time you get to the end of the movie and you don't want to be disappointed because at the ending is shit, you know, you go, God, you know, 
and you you know you really wanted that to work out and you didn't know how but you just thought the filmmakers would be smart enough to make these characters and this story work out so the ending is always to me very very crucial to get like halloween did that last moment where you go oh man that's scary you know or any of the good ones all have something that ends <coughs> some promise that this is going to go on or that this resolved in a way that's somehow satisfactory to you um but just what all movies should do is have you walk away with an experience that you felt like i'm glad i've spent you know two hours here you know this was great great time right absolutely so, um, so virgil movies for a minute i found out you did uh, the pamela tapes to mm -hmm. friday the 13th i own this game but i don't play it very often was it um, your idea to put the little Easter eggs in it, or did the people who created the game come to you? The people who created the game came to me, uh, and I, I was really fortunate because when I saw how many, you know, incredible alumni from the Fridays, you know, were all part of this thing, and when I saw some of the footage of Kane Hodder doing Jason, it was so violent. I thought, you couldn't get a frame of that into a regular movie, you know, because they, they could just take, you know, smashing somebody's head into a wall you know 20 times you know they're putting them in the fire and stop i mean just stuff you're going home <laughs> so i didn't know exactly what i could contribute other than you know they said they, they've got a voice actress who can do um you know pamela's voice really well you know and sound just like betsy palmer and i heard her and i went wow that's great and then i thought okay this whole notion that She's in the police station, and meanwhile, the rest of the cops are searching Crystal Lake for Jason's body, and then this is the stuff that comes up about what happened, what her past was like, and then, of course, you're going to talk about um, Elias Voorhees, you know, her husband, and I don't want to spoil the twist that I put in there. I mean, some of you guys who have gone through the Easter eggs know what I ultimately, you know, did there, but... I always felt that there was something else about the whole thing with Jason's father. And that's kind of where I, I put that element of the story, you know, into those Easter eggs that Pamela re reveals about the, the true nature of Jason's father. Yeah, I never knew there was Easter eggs. I said I've only played the game a couple of times because I'm not very good at games, but I had to have of a Jason game. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I was when I was doing research on it, like, I found out you put Easter eggs in it. I was like, oh, that is awesome. I, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I just I wrote, it, I wrote it like a radio play. You know, it was like you never saw anything; you're just listening to it. Um, right? Is it like cassette tapes or something? And you just, you know, it, it was it was fun, and uh, you know, kind of could do whatever i wanted you know with within that and uh you know that that it, it was a fun assignment and i wish the game kept going because they have so many other ideas that they wanted yeah to i do. know so we all i wish it would have too and even though i didn't play that much i i wish it wouldn't happen the way it did yeah we wanted him to make it manhattan in the game <laughs> finally <laughs> yeah why not yeah, <laughs> have different levels <laughs> callbacks to all the movies <laughs> I mean, they put, uh, didn't they put the NES Jason in there? Yeah. 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 I was like, why not? <laughs> yeah. Doing, doing these conventions and, you know, meeting all the fans and stuff out there. It's so great how many different 
things that they really love about the whole franchise and some are real you know the purple <laughs> the purple blue jason is like you know really meant something because they played that when they were like seven years old you know or something and you know they have t-shirts with that on it and the other others you know are jason live fans or others they're you know the original or you know the remake you know it's all over the map but everybody sort of loves the fact that like Frankenstein, you know, he's like their monster, you know, and right. the one they grew up on. And that's the one they watched a thousand times over and over and over again, you know, because, you know, you had it on VHS or, or you know, DVD or Blu-ray or now, of course, can stream it. Yeah. Um, let's see, Madison uh, from Murfreesboro. Uh, she was wondering about your creative progress uh, for Jason Libs. Um, how easy or hard was it? Uh, did it come at you at once or in waves? It it was pretty much a one few days burst. <laughs> uh, if you go on YouTube and you look up "Legends Never Die, Hollywood Forever," there is it's it's on. I guess it's on the the Screen Factory. Um, uh, extras, but it's a, it's an interview with me in black and white. It looks very cool the way they shot it. And I basically am introducing you to all the famous dead people that are at Hollywood forever. Um, that, you know, that are cool to me, you know, Johnny Ramone and, and, you know, Cecil B. DeMille and all these guys, Faye Ray, King Kong. And then I talk about, you know, on the other side of the fence of that cemetery is Paramount Studios. And the cemetery is where I wrote and Jason lives. And I wrote it with a pencil and notebook paper. And, you know, I would come every day and sit out there and kind of let, you know, my imagination run with, you know, run with itself. And first I did a kind of a treatment, a synopsis of the whole story that was approved. And then I came back and just kind of wrote the screenplay all by hand, gave it to a typist at Paramount, and then they wrote it up. So the process was, yeah, it's like, I kind of just let the cemetery, my imagination speak to me. And I was like the, the note taker that what, oh, okay. <laughs> it was, a, you know, I, I don't think I've ever had that, you know, that kind of a process quite like that before or since. So it, it was kind of exciting, you know, to, to do it that way. Um, and then of course that cemeteries meant a lot to me. Anyway. <clears throat> I shot One Dark Night, my first movie in that mausoleum. My crypt, where I shall be forevermore, is in that. Is that was that. another question that was sort of brought up. Uh, Jamie Michigan was talking about the One Dark Night mausoleum. You actually bought and owned that crypt for it. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, you know, again, I bring that up in this uh, Hollywood Forever. Um, the, I'm sorry, Legends Never Die Hollywood Forever uh, YouTube thing. Um, that you know, I was inspired at one point to, to actually buy a crypt and plan for once I'm gone, how the show will go on. And part of it is just my whole belief in, in the psychic sciences, the paranormal, what we are all capable of doing that you go, no, that can't happen. And, you know, and I always go, how about this? How about if I showed you this phone, say 25 years ago, you know, Maybe you probably weren't even born, but you know, the idea of having all this being able, you know, to do what we're doing right now and stuff, forget about it. Nobody would ever say that was real. That's like some crazy sci-fi idea. And my strong belief is that, you know, what we have up here 
is far greater than any, you know, chip or anything that you can do, create digitally. We just don't know how to do it in a pattern that always pr produces the same result. For something to be scientific, you've got to be able to do it three times the same way and have it produce the same results. Certain people see ghosts, certain people don't. Certain people get bad vibes, certain people don't. Certain people see someone and go, that's my life partner. Other people marry 20 times and never find the right one. You know, some people drink because their dad did and their grandfather did and their great grandfather did and they hated every one of them, but they do the same thing. They can't break. There's stuff that we go, there's got to be other ways that we're being influenced and things happen that we just don't quite grasp. And I have this feeling about what you leave behind and what you can leave behind and the energies that we all have when we exchange with each other. What if I could leave something there that when people come, that, that crypt acts almost like a modem that can pull something in. So every year on my birthday, I gather friends, fans, anybody who wants to come and we meet and we talk about life. We talk about things we're doing. We talk about the good things, we laugh. And I'm filling that corridor with as many great memories and hopes and dreams so that hopefully after I'm gone and in that sucker, you know, people come back into that and it's like, I mean, I'm feeling something here. You know, maybe they never even came to those gatherings, but you feel something mm -hmm. as you do on, you know, murder sites, as you do in your grandmother's house. It's like, God, it just feels so cozy. There's something there that nobody can tell me I'm right or wrong. We just don't know, you know, and right. that's the whole thing is like, I'm not talking about going to heaven and hell. I'm talking about leaving like a film, you know, but in this, in this case, it's an energy you know, of some sort and it can be positive or negative. Mine, I just want it to be positive and want people to feel like, you know what? I still sense this son of a bitch. God, weird. <laughs> I, you know, this again, people say, how are you going to know? You're going to be dead. I go, I know right now. And the idea sounds very cool right now. So I'm happy now. I don't know how I'll be later, but right now the idea and a lot of people go, okay, sure. All right. I'll buy it. Why not? So before I get into doomsday's question, I just want to add one dark night is on Tubi right now and it has the late great Adam West in it. And that movie is amazing. You definitely should check it out. But doomsday says, is there one horror piece of memorabilia that you have that is priceless to you? Whoa. Uh, well, obviously the, the Jason's coffin and the, um, you know, the tombstone are, are great. Um, I don't know if I'm going to, you know, when I get into, uh, some point in my life, go, I'm going to have to sell that. I can't pay the rent. <laughs> I'm hoping not. Um, I almost gave both of them to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences because uh, Guillermo um, del Toro uh, had contacted me and said that they were looking for horror things. And it things got kind of crossed up in, in the communication and stuff, so it ended up not happening. So I still have the stuff. But yeah, I mean, I've got Raymar's plaque from One Dark Night, which means a lot to me. And, and uh, I've got the arrow that was punched in my eye in the movie Prophecy, where I was the mutated bear, you know, in that. Um, so I've got, you know, little things here and there of stuff I've gotten, you know, involved with. Um, and there's, you know, just some just cool effect things that I've picked up, uh, you know, from collectors and stuff over the years that aren't mine, but 
you know, had a you know great impact on me, like a recreation of Linda Blair, you know, in the makeup for the demon that is very chilling that a young makeup artist did that I was incredibly impressed with. Steve, did you have any more of your questions? I think that was it from uh, back there. Um, While you're looking, I'll ask. When you did a Without a Trace, did they already have like a uh, like a story outline for you to go or was that the whole thing your idea? No, Without a Trace, I mean, like most of those shows, um, they, you know, they have very high paid script and TV teleplay writers. The problem with mine was um, they hadn't quite figured out what the story was going to be exactly. They kind of had an idea for what the, you know, the case was going to be, but how they were going to do it. So I kind of walked into a situation where it's like, all right, well, because you have to pick locations for things when you're going to shoot them. And there's certain sets that have already been built, like, you know, what their offices were and things. So, you know, you're always going to be doing scenes in there. But, you know, they said, well, one scene's going to take place in a hospital, we think. And one's going to be in like a, you know, a, you know, business complex thing, we think. So there was a lot. There was a lot of like going and seeing stuff and trying to prove it, but having no idea what you were going to shoot, what the tone of it was. It, you know, a lot of television, particularly in that time, was really kind of chaotic that they would get very behind in okaying scripts. And it was very rough for the directors. So I didn't really know, you know, exactly what it was going to be until pretty much a few days before, you know, it was going to shoot. And then you have to kind of depend on, well, the cameraman has been on this show for a full season. He knows what he's doing. The cast knows what they're doing. So you kind of, you know, balance yourself in between all the people that are experienced, you know, with a particular series, you know, to kind of, you know, take you through. Because, uh, yeah, I, that's why I'm not a big fan of series as a director, because it's somebody else's bat and ball, and, you know, and field. And it's like, here, go play. All right, that's it. Take it back. <laughs> Whereas when you create it yourself, you know what it is, you know what you want, you know, you, you, you know, you're the engine of the whole thing. So I, 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 I have always been curious about that. It was a series that a long lasting series, but some of them have different directors or something like that. I was always curious, like how they did that, but I didn't know if like the director had like complete control of the story or if they just like, here you go, go do it. <laughs> some, some do, but even, you know, Quentin Tarantino came in and did a couple of episodes of, I don't know, CSI or one of those type crime series shows and he just you know came in and said okay this is how the show goes and he's a fan of the show and he shot it the way you know the show looks and you know provided what little touches he could which is what we all do as directors is that mm -hmm. you know you may say to an actor you know make it a little less you know loud just bring it down or somebody else may say you know as you're saying this you realize this person is gorgeous and you didn't expect them to be so gorgeous. So that's going on, you know, in the scene. So when you see it, you go, that was interesting what happened in that scene. And, you know, then that might've been purely because that particular director had the actors kind of approach the scene different than just information, you know, as certainly happens in these procedural things. Where were you on the night of so-and-so? And did you did it? You know, there's no real relationships. It's all questions, answers, and you know, the good ones. You kind of get there's something else happening. Are they lying? Are they, you know, telling the truth? Is it partly truth? So again, that's uh, hopefully what the director helps guide the actor into. 
And so uh, this will be my, my question for you then, uh, since we've been talking about your career and all, let's go back a little bit. Uh, I think you said the Monster Universal kind of uh, inspired you. Uh, what else inspired you the most? And uh, always into creative writing and directing. Did you go to school for that? Well, I had a kind of a very strange um, childhood for two reasons. One, my father was a USC film graduate. Uh, he graduated in 1949. You couldn't get a job in Hollywood as a film student looking for work. I mean, it was unheard of. You got into the film business because you had enough money that you put some money into a, you know, some movie, or you knew somebody and could get into one of the studios and get a job. Um, you, it was your uncle that had the job and he brought you in, you know, whatever. It wasn't because you had a film education. So he had this sort of bitter pill he had to swallow about. They weren't hiring him to do that, but he was also a magician and a fire eater. So he, you know, would get these jobs, you know, doing that as he had done, you know, pretty much his whole life. And he bought a house in Culver City in Los Angeles that was right next to the MGM studios. So as a kid, I literally had the old backlots of the MGM studios to make my little eight millimeter movies of which he encouraged me because he loved movies and you know he'd like to see his son kind of do what you know he loved so i you know i had that sort of going as yeah i want to be a filmmaker um i you know i want to be a magician i want to you know be a performer and then the beatles hit in 62 and suddenly my hair grew out i got kicked out of seven high schools my father wanted to disown me my mother didn't know what the hell to do with me but here I was 15, 16 years old, eventually, you know, opening for the doors for Iron Butterfly, for the animal, <laughs> for Pink Floyd, for all these iconic groups. And, you know, we were just kids. So that kind of was what, you know, got me, you know, off into the whole rock and roll world of which I'm still doing today. You know, we, we reformed that band from the sixties and for the last 10 years, we have been you know, doing albums. We have a vinyl album out, which is something we wanted to do in the 60s, but didn't get a chance to do. And music videos and, um, you know, uh, tours, you know, and we were touring all the way up until, you know, the wonderful virus hit and everything, you know, stopped. And yeah. we had a whole bunch of jobs that we were supposed to have done this past summer. Everything was canceled. So, you know, we, unfortunately, we can't even rehearse all together because everybody's older and they're afraid of getting together. I'm a little more foolhardy, you know. I had the damn COVID, you know, got in and out of it in a week and going, okay, I want to get back to my life here. Oh, you got shots? Great, I'll take the fucking shots, all right. I want to get my life back. But the fact is, you know, this variant and how many more coming down the pike is real. And it's a question of whether you get it or you don't get it and how many people spread it, whatever the hell, it's going to eventually it's going to take to get it to stop so it's you know it messes with us one way or the other either we can't do what we want to do or you go out and do it and you you just hope for the best um but my career once i did the rock and roll then evolved into mine because i wanted to be a more interesting visual singer so i went to paris at 19 studied with marcel marceau to be more of a physical performer then got jobs in these horror movies as, you know, the mutant bear in prophecy, Captain Star in the black hole, the Jabberwocky in Alice in Wonderland, 
mechanical toy and incredible shrinking woman, you know, robots, humanoids. I mean, whatever it took, zombies, anything inside of a suit that required movement, you know, that's how I kind of made my living while writing scripts, you know, so that I could get back to what I wanted to do when I was seven, which was make movies. And eventually, you know, One Dark Night was the first script that, you know, that I was able to get made, you know, followed by Friday the 13th. And um, I guess it's been about 42 feature films I've done since that time. So, you know, it's been wonderful. And the fact that the rock and roll started up again 10 years ago, it's sort of like I'm going back, picking up where I left off, you know, hopefully, you know, get those dreams as well told as I possibly can in life. Mm -hmm. Nice. Doomsday says, <clears throat> excuse me, Jason Lives is a favorite of mine, but sometimes they come back, was watched many times with friends as kids. Truly an incredible horror film. Yeah, I absolutely love Sometimes They Come Back. Thank I own that one as well. <laughs> so, well I, there it is. Yeah, I mean, if you get the, the, the book that Joe Madri did on me, which is called A Strange Idea of Entertainment, Conversations with Tom McLaughlin, I probably talk more about Sometimes They Come Back than any other movie of the, of the films I've done, mainly because it happened at a very traumatic point in my life my father had just died. My daughter had just been born. Uh, me and McGarris had put together like 20 episodes of She-Wolf of London and 20 episodes of They Came From Outer Space that we were overseeing. My best friend, Stephen Banks, that I directed his stage show, that was being done as a Disney uh, comedy special that I was also directing. And I was prepping, sometimes they come back, that was going to be shot in Canvas, Kansas. All this stuff was happening simultaneously. So emotionally, I was like all over the place. But somehow in the telling of that story, so much of my own personal life kind of came into it. And Tim Matheson and I somehow bonded in a way that he was like the other part of me. And he brought stuff to it that I could never have done because Tim Matheson is a wonderful actor, incredible guy. But, you know, I somehow, through the process of making the movie, we had nothing but problems. I mean, day one, it snowed, you know, 10 inches, and we lost all the first day we could shoot. And every other day, something would happen, and we went from a 28-day shoot to a 36-day shoot, which is unheard of in low-budget filmmaking. And it was also being made as a CBS TV movie at the same time we were shooting as a feature for Europe. And it was just racked with problems and issues and setbacks and stuff. But somehow when all the pieces came together and the music that Terry, Terry Plumeri put on it had a heart that made it something more than just a scary ghost story. There was a, there was a real deep sort of Stephen King family connection that occurred in the process of this. And it had to do with, of course, everybody, you know, doing it, but I know when my two kids saw the movie later on in life, they just went, God, dad, that's so much you, that's so much your life, you know, in there. And it's like something as a filmmaker, you don't necessarily see, you're just kind of going through it and it comes through just in the way you direct and the choices you make. Um, and so that yeah, it is a very personal film to me. And I love when people do say it's like one of their favorites. Some people, it's their favorite Stephen King movie, which shocks the hell out of me because it's basically, for most people, a little TV movie. 
you know, that came and went. But it did so well in Europe that they did sometimes they come back too, and sometimes they come back again. For so more, it yeah. obviously, you know, worked for people that they made sequels. Was uh, Stephen King like involved in any of it or on set at all? No, not at all. Unfortunately, I I've I know he is on some, but not all. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, Mick Garris has had a wonderful relationship with Stephen King because you know he's done some of the really big King, you know, things like The Stand, um, and you know he talks you know gloriously about him as a guy, but I yeah I've never had the you know the fortune of meeting him. Uh, which, you know, there's there's people that have been so instrumental in my life, you know, creatively. Perfect example, Alice Cooper. You know, everybody goes, God, you and Alice, you must, must, guys must have really hit it off and stuff. And I go, you know, I have not met Alice Cooper in 35 years since I made this movie and we got him. Then he wrote the song and I asked for two other songs and the record company let us have it and stuff. Alice and I have not physically met. But in mid 1960s when i had this band the sloss which i was talking about earlier alice was a guy named vincent from texas who had a band called the naz and we played on the same bills together we hung out at frank zappa's house together and talked and stuff i never knew that was alice cooper you know that vincent was alice until years <laughs> later so we knew each other you know way back there in the mid 60s but as I said, since he's been Alice, you know, have yet to meet him. So, you know, there's certain people that it's like, you know, I've worked twice for Steven Spielberg, still have not met Steven, yet have done <laughs> stuff with him. So every so often in the creative world, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, these people, you've worked with their material or you've got their okay on certain things, mm -hmm. but it's not like, you know, you literally know them. I chuckled when you brought that up because actually, then literally the next question in the chat it was from Spaced Out Ace. What do you think of '80s rock and metal, and then Alice Cooper? <laughs> so as soon as you brought that up, I started chuckling. It wasn't for what you said; it was just because the next question was Alice Cooper. <laughs> Alice Cooper, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I came late to the whole '80s metal stuff because you know we were '60s, and then of course into some of the '70s, and then. Once I started making films, of course, I listened to rock and roll, but it wasn't like, you know, put on the headphones, smoke a joint and sit there all fucking day, you know, banging your head. You know, I didn't get that, you know, so it took a while. And a lot of it has to do with my girlfriend, Laura, who's an 80s, total 80s freak, loves every, knows everything about every band, every horror movie in the 80s. So, you know, I got this whole sort of, you know, indoctrination to all of that through her. And of course now, you know, we'll go and see, you know, these acts and, or when we could go see them. Um, and of course, listen to the music and stuff. So I've, I've become more and more of a fan of that, uh, you know, that genre of music. Um, but I really like pretty much everything. I, it's like, you know, electronic, I didn't get until I went to a couple of raves and hung out and got it, you know, and there's times, you know, rap, same thing, didn't get rap until I started hanging around kids who wrote rap and then suddenly I got it, you know, and you, once you really kind of understand where a certain type of music comes from and kind of get into that vibe, there's some just great stuff that certain people would go, nah, I never listened to that. But, you know, you kind of have to open yourself up to, you know, what it has, um, you know, that you can relate to on some level. Sounds almost like my music taste is like all over the place. I don't have like a set thing. I have a couple favorites, but like if, 
I don't really have like a set. Oh, I only listen to such such music, but I have my all over the place. If I like the sound of it, I listen to it. Like my yeah. Spotify playlist is like all over the place, from like Dean Martin to Rob Zombie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's all over. It's all good. <laughs> Throw in some good, Billy you know? in there because supposedly <laughs> I'm related to Willie Nelson, so I gotta have some of him in there. Yeah. <laughs> so I went. I got to see Willie live like two years ago, three years ago, I guess it's been, which I never had a chance to, and I thought. Okay, I gotta do this, you know, and it was great. It was this wonderful. Yeah, I've always won. He's never been, as far as I know, like anywhere nearby. But I've always been curious because it's always been a family rumor that he's like a distant relative in my family, and I just never confirmed. It was probably just a rumor, but I just you know to go see that you know the possible distant distant cousin monster. <laughs> yeah, I was. I've been very blessed in my life that I've seen twice the Beatles live. The Stones, I don't know how many times I was at Monterey Pop Festival and we all were seeing Jimi Hendrix for the first time and Janis Joplin and The Who. And then later on in life, finally catching up with, you know, Motley Crue and ACDC and, you know, all these other, you know, incredible bands. It's just like, you know, how can you dislike one or like one over the other if you just, if you go to the concerts and you're there with the fans and you're going, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing, but People go like, I can't, you were, no way you were at the Monterey Pop Festival. And I go, look at the documentary, Monterey Pop Festival. Three times you'll see my face like this. <laughs> <laughs> Stoned out of my gourd with my best friend, Chris, whose father was Henry Mancini, who got us front row seats at Monterey Pop. And we were, you know, 16 year old, you know, weed smokers that had a band and we were blessed to get to be at some place that was historical in music and you know it had such an impact particularly particularly Jimi Hendrix I mean mm -hmm. I, it's like I want to be him you know that that was like mind-blowing to see that live and see him light that guitar and you know do the stuff he did amazing yeah I can only imagine I never I've never really been to live. I've been to two concerts my whole life I've never really gotten to go but I've seen oh. Hinder and Allison Chains <laughs> Oh, you're you're young. You still got time. The, 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 no. <laughs> Not that young. <laughs> We're all young, darling. <laughs> Anything else? Did you have any more? I know we're a little bit past our hour mark. I don't know. I guess uh, one last uh, question, or uh, maybe something you want to tell us about yourself that we may not know about, whether it be hobbies, interests, or talents, or anything you'd like to share. Um. Oh, what, what do I always wish I had talked about? Um, oh, two things. One, conventions. I People go, well, how come you never come to these conventions? You know, you got all these people that want to see you and stuff. It's not that I don't want to. It's that the fans have to say to the people that book them, you know, we want, you know, Tom McLaughlin to come to this. You know, I've done a couple of Days of the Dead. I did a Horror Hound years ago in Cincinnati. Um, but since that time, you know, if fans don't say something, they'll basically kind of book the people that they know have done well in the past. And yet, like I did this drive-in theater uh, in Pittsburgh, I'm sorry, in uh, Philadelphia last weekend, and I was autographing stuff for four hours before I introduced the movie, you know, Friday the 13th at the drive-in. And, you know, the person that books me sat there going, I can't believe this. And I go, people now, want the writer director it used to be no we only want the person on the screen but i love going seeing the fans i love hearing the stories 
I want to know, you know, when you saw it, how you saw it, did it have any effect on you or just like what's going on in your life? I mean, I'd love that. So if anybody's out there, you know, and you have any way of emailing or whatever, the people that book these different conventions in your, you know, vicinity, you know, please ask, cause I would love to meet you. And definitely, I'll let Petey who runs Spooky Empire know. I mean, I think it's, you know, booked for this year, but definitely I'll let him know that you should be a possible guest for sure. So. Yeah. Cause it, it is just the thing of, you know, fans love to give back, you know, their appreciation and I love to hear it. And that's, you know, if you can't be in a theater watching people react, at least you can talk to them afterwards and say, yeah, I saw that on DVD 40 times, you know, and I still love it. And I you know that it's great to hear that. And people love to share, you know, their, their stories and how the, you know, how they watched it, you know, in bed with the, you know, blankets pulled up. You know, <laughs> these are just fun things to, to, to get to share. Um, the other thing is um, I've created a group in the last, I guess it's been four months, five months now we've been rehearsing um, because I have the group, the Sloss, which, you know, if you go on the sloss.org, you know, you can see us, hear us, you know, um, you want to get the album or buy a t-shirt or whatever that that's all there on the sloss.org. But I wanted to create something during the pandemic that I've wanted to do for many years and been thinking about, which is put together a band that only plays songs that are from horror movies that we all know and love. And when I started to research it, there's like 50 really cool songs that if you never even saw the horror movie, it's like, oh, I love that song, you know. Uh, and, you know, the fact that we could play also at the conventions and stuff for the audience who are horror fans and rock and roll fans, I've always thought that could be, you know, just incredible. So, of course, you know, I've always done Man Behind the Mask, even with the Sloss, and, you know, sing it as close to sounding like Alice as possible. You know, now we're doing, you know, doing things like Fear the Reaper, you know, doing Pet Cemetery. I mean, you name it, you know, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And it is great fun to do those with a band. And the fact that we can, you know, basically do sets where every song you go, I love that song. And it's not, you know, it's not like we're doing tributes to any one particular, you know, act like ACDC or something. It's all over the map. Everything from Sympathy for the Devil, you know, uh, the Guns N' Roses you know, did in an Interview with a Vampire, you know, on through to, you know, whatever the latest song that's in, something that's just been released. So it's just, it's a chance for me to kind of do horror movies and rock and roll. So, you know, the name of the band is Horror Rocks. So it's like, you know, R-O-X-X, Horror Rocks. So it's, you know, that that's a real passion piece right now for me. And, you know, hopefully by next year, if everything turns around with our world, um, you know, be able to be out there live and, you know, be out in the middle with you guys doing these songs. And since most of you are going to know it, you know, these words like, you know, time warp, there'll be in a crowd and everybody's singing time warp together. You know, so. You know, that, that's, that's the big plans at the moment for getting, getting back out there live. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. And uh, any other projects or anything else to keep an eye out or uh, where we can find you, information of uh, upcoming? Anything upcoming? Of anything else coming up? All right. Or like, uh, you know, if your Twitter website or anything that you post that you want to share or anything that we can keep um, an eye on or. Yeah, just, you know, my Facebook is, you know, Tommy mm -hmm. McLaughlin. 
um, you know, you, obviously you can, you know, put that on. I, I tend to keep going over the limit. So I, I have to go back and see who's dropped off because lots of times you can go through your. Right. Yeah. People have like disappeared off the face of the earth and they're still taking up space. So, <laughs> you know, I'm sort of ejecting. What's the word? Ejecting. Thank you. Ejecting. There we go. You know, certain people that are no longer there. Um, so that that's one place, as I mentioned, the sloths, um, YouTube. You know, uh, there's stuff you can see there, um, and yeah, just in general, um, if anybody's interested in in the book, that's on you know, Amazon. Um, strange idea of entertainment that if you want to hear some crazy stories about somebody in show business, there's a lot in there. And of course, if you love the movies, you know, I talk at great length about how we did them and you know what we did. All right. Yep. And when you're talking about like the horror songs, the first song that popped in my head was um you know like the original blob movie that little mm -hmm. theme song that they had yeah. I think that would be good, like a little kind of a rock twist to it i think that would be a good song that's a that's a great suggestion i forgot about that yeah yeah i actually got that on my playlist because i like the song <laughs> i like the way it goes but yeah you should get to like do something like ari uh, the first jason i can't think of his last name name yeah well, this is this is quite young because Ari's doing all his own songs. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that he is stuff. doing his own. Ari's, you know, when when I finally get this to sort of the spectacular thing that I want it to be, there'll be like you know clips from the movies behind us. So oh, yeah, we'll be playing the songs at the same time. You get images from oh. Fright Night or you know whatever you know horror movie the songs from. So it, it'll be also a visual experience. But I'm very much as a performer getting off the stage, getting out with people and getting people involved um so that that's again part of what i think is so cool about live stuff is that you literally can bring the audience in with you into it and that that is something obviously we can't do with the movies and certainly can't do on streaming so yeah, yeah. that sounds amazing if you guys come near me i would definitely go <laughs> oh yeah for sure <laughs> that's all right well thank you guys so much i really you know enjoyed talking with you and you know all right hopefully brought some insight into the crazy world of Tom McLaughlin. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much. We appreciate right. it. Okay. Thank all you guys too. All right. Have a good night. Okay. We kidnapped him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. We cyber napped him again. <laughs> <clears throat> he has other movies that I would highly suggest. I watched this movie last night. I did not know it was going to be as dark as it was because I went off the synopsis off Tubi, but Rock Steady Row, it's on Tubi. Definitely check that out. That movie, it's a little slow, but it's very dark. Definitely check it out. Uh, Behind the Mask is also on Tubi. It's it's not a horror movie, um, but it's a really good movie. It's uh, probably more of a drama movie. Um, trying to see what else. There's another, oh, Murder of Innocence. Oh my God, that is based on a true story that is also on Tubi. Highly, 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 highly suggest that and the one he was talking about, the one dark night that is on Tubi. Those two definitely highly suggest those movies. All right, have a good night, spaced out. Thanks for joining. Thanks for the questions as well. Yeah. Highly, 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 highly suggest that and the one he was talking about, the one dark night that is on TV, those two 
definitely highly suggest those movies. All right. Have a good night. Spaced out. Thanks for joining. Thanks for the questions as well. Yeah. And Fairy Tale. He did Fairy Tale, A True Story. That's on Paramount Plus. If uh, that's another non horror movie to check out, if you yeah. want to look at something that's not horror. Well, I thought it was weird because he said uh, he played the bear in, Pro in Prophecy, but in the description on IMDb, it says lists him as a mime. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it says uh, mime. It doesn't say that he played the bear. So I thought that was weird. I was going to bring it up, but we got talking about so many things. that. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the Rocksteady Row as well, but and the Murder of Innocence, I have some questions about, but... Oh. But it is fine, yeah. It's not that... Maybe in the future we'll get some more questions. Maybe we'll get him back. I know we have a short amount of time, and we was talking about probably a little bit more important topics that more people probably know, but... Yeah. Yeah, the murder of innocence definitely highly suggests true crime story that he brought to life and definitely highly suggests the actress. She's famous. Um at least she was like like in like eighties or nineties, something like that. I can't think of her name and I don't have a way to look it up, but she did an amazing job. So highly suggest. But other than that. I don't know. Bill, all did you get to see at the convention today? Oh, let's see. Uh, I hadn't saw Jason Hughes uh, today, of course. Um, some of the Nightmare people I 